You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. This is Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. And on this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, kids, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles of rocky shorelines, sandy seafloors, rocky banks, deep-sea canyons, and maritime landscapes and artifacts. The ocean covers 70% of our planet. It generates 50% of the Earth's oxygen and absorbs 25 to 30% of all carbon dioxide emissions and captures 90% of the additional heat generated from those emissions. Once considered vast and inexhaustible, the ocean is facing threats and limits to growth that were not really imagined decades ago. Providing oxygen and food, controlling the weather, and absorbing excess carbon emissions, the ocean is our ally in the quest for a sustainable future. It is also an economic powerhouse that supports entire industries, generates millions of jobs, and helps drive the modern global economy. Current trends threaten both the environmental health and the economic vitality of the ocean. Overfishing, marine pollution, acidification, and rising ocean temperatures are negatively impacting important industries, including fishing and tourism, as well as the ability of coastal communities to thrive and small island and developing states to, to sustainably develop. As high-level reports from scientists globally continue to pile up detailing what actions need to be taken to reduce carbon dioxide levels, they mainly have focused on land-based solutions. Last fall, the High-Level Panel for a Sustainable Ocean Economy commissioned a report to look to the ocean for ocean-based opportunities that could reduce global emissions and provide related benefits to achieve near-term sustainable development goals. My guest today is Nancy Konar, and she is a lead ocean economist with the World Resources Institute Sustainable Ocean Initiative. She provides economic advice and carries out economic analysis to advance the Sustainable Ocean Initiative, particularly in support of the Friends of Ocean Action and the High-Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy. Mansi is one of the 20 expert authors for the report we are discussing today, and she's joining us by phone. So welcome, Mansi. You are live on KWMR. Hi, Jennifer. This is Mansi. This is a high-level report, and meaning it brings together a global team of experts. And can you give us some background on what the High-Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy is and how this report came to be? Sure. The report has been commissioned as you say, by the High-Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy. Uh, The panel is a unique initiative that brings together 14 heads of governments 
that really care about the ocean and they want to develop pragmatic solutions that's not only important for the health of the ocean but also the future of the people and the planet so by heads of governments i mean there are 14 presidents and prime ministers that are supported by the un special envoy for ocean uh, uh peter thompson and the panel is chaired by norway and palau as um co-chairs uh what it's i want to also emphasize that this ocean panel is uh one of the highest political panels that's focusing on the ocean itself so it comes with a lot of authority to transform recommendations into actions at the highest levels of government and business so um that uh hopefully gives a summary of what the panel is about i'd like to talk about why uh, the leaders thought we needed to do this analysis and why they thought uh it was important for us um to uh prepare this report and um what uh was rightly felt by the heads of government uh was that uh often ocean uh does not feature when it comes to international discussions and debates on climate change related topics um and uh given this absence uh, there was uh, th- there was a lot of eagerness from uh, the panel uh, and the uh, the heads of state to make sure that uh, go- going into the un uh, global action summit in uh, september last year uh, we we give a very quantified response in terms of what ocean based solutions can do in addressing the climate change issue so um this is very much a demand driven science uh the policy makers ask us a question of saying um you know often oceans are talked about as a victim of climate change are there solutions that can address the climate change issue and that brought together a community of scientists economists social researchers to develop a robust evidence based answer and you have some really novel messages and findings coming out of the report thank you for that overview that's really helpful and it's so wonderful to hear how uh the effort was to focus on the ocean for bringing around some ideas for solutions and not just look at the ocean as a victim why do you think that ocean as a solution hasn't been discussed much until recently it seems that this is fairly new that we're really looking how we can look to the ocean for solutions regarding bringing down carbon emissions that's a really valid question Jennifer. and often it is asked quite uh, wide, widely in the talks that i've given on the report it has come up i personally feel that it's because uh, as land based beings our interaction for majority of us our interactions are limited to the land um unless uh, you know you are your livelihood depends on the ocean unless you are very much um uh you know working uh, you you're a scuba diver and you're diving into the oceans you you're it's very hard to understand the complex uh ecosystems that exist underneath the water and what happens is uh what is out of sight becomes out of mind so um in it's it's really encouraging that more and more research is um 
being devoted to understanding the ecosystems, um, ocean-based ecosystems that we have, and uh, it, um, and more research is being um, done on marine exploration and marine science. Uh, but we still are playing catch-up, and um, because it has been largely ignored. But I'm hoping that with initiatives like this, this is going to change, and it's going to get the attention and the focus that um, it needs. The report lays out five opportunities that are ocean-based regarding solutions as well as co-benefits towards sustainable development goals. And I was hoping you could walk us through each of these a little bit and tell us a little bit about what it is, um, how it came to be, and, and perhaps some of the ways that this is an action that can help bring down emissions. And, I, you know, it can get really confusing when we start talking about gigatons. And one thing I noticed was the difference between 2020 and 2050 and how 2050, the, the actual savings of carbon emissions is significantly higher. I know uh, the 20, oh, 2030 to 2050, 2030 is just 10 years away and 2050 is a bit longer. But maybe you could talk a little bit about that, how these significant savings down the road are even and even more so. And maybe we can just start with the ocean-based renewable energy one. Do you think it would be helpful to, before I dive into the solutions, to take a bit of a step back and give some really high-level messages that are coming out of the report as well and then do a deep dive into the five solutions? Sure, let's do that. That sounds great. Please do. Great. Um, so uh, this report was... Um, released uh, roughly at the same time as the IPCC report uh, that issued a stark warning in terms of changes that's already in play in the global ocean. So it, the IPCC report on ocean and cryosphere highlighted that with climate change, the ocean would become warmer, become more acidic, there'll be higher sea levels, um, and it will become less predictable. Uh, what's, what this report does, it's a pivot from this. It's uh, a report of hope and optimism because it makes us focus, as you say, on the solutions to climate change. And um, what the key, the, the, the panel was, uh, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for us to work on this um, report thanks to the high-level panel. And what it wanted was a very concise message of what are we saying about these ocean-based solutions. And that, and the, the headline message that comes out of the report is that ocean-based climate action could deliver up to 21%. That's one-fifth of the emission cuts that's needed in 2050 to limit global temperature rise to a 1.5 degree Celsius. So this would... So as, you, as we were talking about earlier, that this means that ocean-based solution can play a really important role in protecting all of us, um, not just the marine ecosystem, but the you know the various countries and communities uh, uh, from the most devastating impacts of climate change. Just that one fifth, the twenty-one percent. Just to give an idea, because often you know we talk about percentages, and in real terms, it's it's helpful to think, what does it really mean? And this means about 2.5 million met, uh, petrol cars will be off the road. Uh, it, it's double the yearly emissions of United States. So these are big savings that um, 
that when we went into the when we started research on the report, we hadn't really realized the the uh, the massive uh, you know the massive impact that some of these solutions would have. So that was really uh, kind of a pleasant surprise for many of us. Um, the other thing is um, the report goes beyond. It doesn't just focus on climate-related benefits. It also goes beyond it. It looks at uh, what are the other uh, benefits that you get from, um, you know, delivering these solutions. So you are looking at um, it's achieved, you know, how do they contribute to sustainable development goals and targets? Uh, By this, I mean that will they, you know, will they help countries achieve uh, the goals and targets that often they care about. So, like, would they help reduce poverty? Will they? Will these solutions help improve the health of the population? Will they? Will it lead to employment? So, what was really interesting that there's a host of co-benefits that come from these solutions. It's not just reduction in greenhouse gases, but there. Uh, these wider benefits are another reason why we should be taking action and why we should be implementing the solutions. Um, just to say the report also identifies trade-offs, which says that if you were to implement some of these solutions, there could be a negative impact with, say, the marine environment because you're competing with space and other activities. You could um, have an a short-term impact on employment, for example, if you're reforming fisheries, what would that mean for, you know, the the, the fishing effort in the short term? Uh, but all of these can be addressed. You know, there are negative impacts that have been highlighted because it's important for policymakers to note them when the um, when they are implementing the solutions. Um, I, I just wanted to give this high-level picture on the report, but now I'm really happy to um, deep dive into the specific uh, solutions. That's great. And I just want to let listeners know this is Ocean Currents, and my guest today is Mansi Konar from the World Resources Institute. And we're talking about the high-level panel for the sustainable ocean economy and a report that details out how we can have significant carbon reductions from looking to the ocean for solutions Thank you for bringing out the the big number of 21% that could be brought down in carbon emissions from these solutions put into play. That's pretty significant. And if you could talk when you're going through each of these, just give us an idea of, you know, how much does this one contribute to, to that number? The ocean-based renewable energy, um, I'll start with that. I'll prov- provide a beef brief summary, and then um, we'll uh, look forward to any questions that you have uh, on each of these areas. Um, So the first is ocean-based renewable energy. Um, Within that, we look at offshore wind. So um, that's um, using fixed and floating technology of offshore wind farms. But we also look at other innovative technologies in this area. So we um, the, the the this report looks at uh, wave, tidal, floating solar, um, and what it does is it um, it calculates what if we were to expand these technologies and displace cold fire power plants, the total miti- what would the total mitigation potential of the sector be, and. Um, 
if you uh, look at the report in a bit of detail, it would show that uh, ocean-based renewable energy is the biggest contributor to that 21%. Um, it's uh, roughly about 50%. Uh, it makes that contribution, and so it would be equivalent to taking... Um, uh, over 1 billion cars off the road per year, for example. So wow. these are, um, a, that's a big, sizable win um, that we talked there. Then ocean-based transport uh, is um, another area that we look at. Uh, within that, we look at um, international uh, shipping as well as domestic shipping. Uh, and uh, just to give a bit of background about the sector, um, the sector itself uh, is responsible for 3% of the global uh, CO2 emissions. Uh, so that's a huge chunk. And while the, the international body, uh, uh, known as the United Nations International Maritime Organization, ha addresses this greenhouse gas issue through its um, initial strategy, uh, with an objective to reduce the emissions by at least 50%, the report is going beyond that. It's actually saying, you know, there is potential out here to go beyond the 50% reduction. We could actually look at probably a 100% reduction um, and get to net zero emissions by 2050. Um, and uh, the report talks about a lot of these measures. Many of them, interestingly, are win-wins. Um, and... Uh, what you would see is um, uh, in in some in some instances uh, by changing the design of the ship. So you uh, so by adopting various technology measures, you're actually bringing about fuel savings. Uh, so this would mean, for example, altering the weight of the ship, uh, the design of the ship to reduce friction, such as you know hull coating, air lubrication, uh, propeller upgrade. All of those, if you were to in uh, all of those logistic changes, if you were to bring about, uh, then that would result in fuel fuel savings, which will be um, beneficial to the fish uh, to the ship operator as well as reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Can I ask, is it still using fossil fuels, those in that proposal, in terms of all the technological advances and efficiencies of those vessels? Yes. But is, is it yes. continuing to use fossil fuels? So in this, in this case, there are two types of measures. So the first is, if you want even switching to, you know, cleaner fuels or low carbon fuels, and you were to just adopt these technology um, technology measures as well as operational measures like reducing the speed of ships, then you would still reduce emissions and you would have these savings. But in addition to that, it does, as you rightly say, point to moving, switching towards low carbon fuels um, and zero carbon fuels uh, such as uh, hydrogen, ammonia and some biofuels. And that's the change that you see in the uh, in the figures that you mentioned that you know okay we, in 10 years we see the emissions for the sectors are you know there is a mitigation potential that's high but in 2050 it increases because in this instance it's showing that the more we invest towards mover to moving towards clean energy because there's only so much that you can achieve through efficiency measures you will get a bigger win thank you for explaining that 
That's actually quite a win for us, too, here in California. Um, we have a lot of efforts trying to request ships to slow down as they approach San Francisco because we have a really high concentration of endangered whales feeding in the National Marine Sanctuaries, and we've been trying to work with the the industry to request them to slow down. So there could be even additional win-wins there by ships slowing down. I'm so happy you mentioned that, Jennifer, because that is, again, another co-benefit that um, it has been talked about in terms of the no- if you lower the speed of vessels, the strike rates with whales reduce. I think there was a number where 10% reduction in speed is a 40% reduction in strike rates for whales. So exactly as you said, that it is beneficial to marine species. Um, There's also positive impact in terms of noise and any other disturbances. Um, So uh, that they, you know, these measures, as you said, will have a positive impact on the biodiversity. Um, Similarly, if you reduce emissions from shipping vessels, then um, they're hot. It reduces those hot spots of ocean acidification that has been observed along the shipping routes. Um, So again, that will be a positive win-win for the for marine biodiversity. Great. All right, let's keep going. Yes. Sure. Um, So I would like to talk next about fisheries, marine aquaculture, and dietary shifts, just uh, a broad overview. Um, Within, so this section is mainly focusing on food from the ocean. So it's saying that if we were to produce food from the ocean more sustainably and uh, we reduced emissions while doing that, what are the what is the mitigation potential of the sector? And uh, within that, uh, we look at three categories. So we talk about reforming fisheries. So uh, this means cur- currently the wild capture that is um, uh, so basically fishing, uh, you know, fish from the sea. If that uh, that is reformed uh, to the extent that we reduce overfishing, we um, uh, eliminate and combat illegal uh, fishing, then that that would lead to uh, a higher biomass in the ocean, and also at the same time, it would. Um, actually be a more sustainable way of producing more food for um, a growing population. So one of the numbers that uh, that was looked at in the report is currently the, the level of um, uh, harvest um, and landings and catch that is, um, um, that is currently produced is about uh, roughly about 80 million metric tons. And uh, that is estimated to go down uh, to about uh, 67 million metric tons in 2050. Uh, But with fisheries reform, you can actually produce more, you know, by managing these fish stocks more effectively, you you can produce over 20% more than what is currently being produced and 40% more than what would be in the future in 2050. So reforming fisheries is very key here. So we are not saying let, you know, it's important to produce more uh, food by continuing as business as usual, but fishery reform by managing fish stocks, by making sure that we are not over-exploiting them is very key here in that the report talks about. The next feature that it uh, it talks about is reducing emissions um, from aquaculture. And it talks about marine aquaculture and how there's a lot of potential potential to sustainably grow food through marine aquaculture. Um, so 
what is interesting is often um, uh, you have two different types of species which would have a different greenhouse gas impact. So species that do not require feed. Uh, so, for example, shellfish that do not need, uh, you know, various forage fish and species to be um, uh, to be fed to them as feed, uh, for, and that's not ne- necessary for their growth. Then they it, they will have a lower carbon emission uh, in their production compared to finfish uh, production. So, for example, salmon, which requires feed. But that said, producing um, and consuming sustainably um, from food from the ocean will uh, will still be more impactful in reducing greenhouse gases than meat uh, based uh, than you know sourcing your proteins exclusively from meat. So what was very very exciting about this research was it was looking at this shifting diet of saying okay let's produce food more sustainably but if we were to shift diets uh, from an intensive uh, meat consumption diet towards a more sustainably uh, produced uh, ocean uh, protein diet then the the, the greenhouse gases um, uh, that can be reduced is substantial here. Um, a very interesting anecdote, um, before I move to the next sector, I'd like to talk about that was given by Steve Gaines, who uh, authored this section of the paper along with um, uh, Peter Tidemeyers, uh, and uh, was basically that um, he said uh, he said a very interesting thing. He said, if we were to grow muscles around the continental shelf of New Zealand, um, that will replace the amount of meat-based proteins we need to feed a 9 billion population in 2050. So that's a very effective use of land area and doing it. And there are many other novel solutions where you can, and I know we'll be talking a bit about the priorities and the, you know, what does this mean in terms of policies, but um, uh, just a snippet, uh, you know, just a sneak peek of that is often if you can combine some of these solutions and use the um, ocean area in a very effective way that that will be a win-win so many times you know marine if you could do mariculture along with uh, ocean offshore wind you know you are making effective use of the space um, similarly can you have marine protected areas um, uh, you know where there are wind farms because fish often fishing is not allowed in these areas where there are wind farms so those are interesting solutions that are being looked at um, and there is a lot more potential uh, there's a separate paper that was done by the high level panel um, uh, you know, the high-level panel expert group uh, um, led by Chris Costello, which talks about, you know, there is so much potential to produce sustainable produce, uh, sorry, to produce sustainably food from the ocean um, than what we are doing. If we managed our resources, uh, manage our resources effectively and also, uh, you know, thought about um, integrating some of these systems. And we're talking global management of fisheries, right? Uh, yes. So we are talking about in terms of yeah global reform, 
fisheries, but obviously this would be done at a country level in terms of, you know, looking at reforming their fisheries within their EEZs. Mm-hmm. For folks tuning in, this is KWMR Point Race Station, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. And Mansi, I know, um, I just want to let you know, we have about 15 minutes left, so I really want to um, keep moving through your highlights here so we can also talk. I have some other questions for after um, we share these opportunities. So thank you for pausing there for a moment. Of but course. Feel, feel free to keep going. I will, uh, yes, I will quickly give a summary of the other areas. Um, Then we talk about nature-based solutions, um, which covers mangroves, salt marshes, seagrasses that store carbon. Um, And in addition, we look at seaweed aquaculture that can be used for fuel, food, and feed. And they offer significant mitigation potential. Uh, So uh, what... uh, and in addition to that, what the report talks about, that often these greenhouse gases benefits that we measure are secondary to what the other benefits these protected areas provide in terms of uh, you know, protection from uh, storms and coastal floodings. Um, it, there's clear documented evidence that where there are um, healthy mangroves, the, cyclone, the impacts from cyclone are, are much lower than what would have been if the, uh, if the a mangrove was in a degraded state. Um, similarly, they are very important as nursery grounds for fish, whether it's domestic consumption, whether it's commercial consumption. Um, and, they, and, and mangroves, uh, there is evidence to show that they, they provide traditional me- medicine to local communities. So a whole host of benefits that, that uh, the nature-based solution piece talks about. Um, and what was interesting and exciting was seaweed aquaculture, which uh, actually at the moment accounts for 50% of all the ocean food production, so the mariculture production. Um, so it's very significant, but it's mostly, um, uh, it's still very much concentrated in emerging economies. So there's potential there to uh, uh, you know, carry that forward in a sustainable manner. Um, in addition to that, we looked at uh, carbon storage in the seabed, um, and what we and what we talk about here is there's eno- enormous uh, theoretical potential to divert carbon from the atmosphere and store it in the seabed, um, but it currently faces significant technical, economic, and socio-political challenges. Um, which includes concerns about environmental safety. So all of this needs to be explored before it can be deployed at a necessary scale to realize that mitigation potential that we mentioned in the report. Um, so there's, it, this area has been highlighted as something where you know more um, uh, more research would be very beneficial. It's a great overview of these different opportunities that. Uh, the report highlights and provides a lot of details on. I'll, I'll definitely share the website at the end of this interview with folks who really want to dive in and get into more details about some of the benefits that are provided as well as the emissions that are saved um, with a couple different scenarios of these. Um, in terms of priorities for outcomes of this report and urgency in terms of short-term efforts and a little bit more midterm priorities, uh, which ones have taken off in terms of 
new attention and funding towards for learning more about or advancing uh, development of. And I suppose that might be regionally based as well, um, based on different economies. Exactly. I think it's regionally based, based on different uh, economies. Um, as you would know, with, for example, with offshore wind, there's a lot of uh, investment that's um, happening in Europe. In fact, Europe is leading the way um, when it comes to um, off, uh, offshore wind, um, lots of investment that has happened. Uh, but that said, um, you know, California is also uh, focusing on, you know, while offshore winds have been predominantly in the North Sea, you know, there's also uh, been a focus in California um, for the Senate uh, Bill 100, which targets uh, 100% renewable power by 2050. So, um uh, there, so there is um, so there's been a lot of interest in the U.S. California about you know looking at these um, uh, offshore wind as a renewable energy. Um, the other um, other country to who has been um, uh, you know talking a lot about it and thinking about it is China. So as you said, I think a lot of these technologies um, are, um, and, and that's, an, uh, you know, are being thought through and, um, and different countries are at different stages um, in terms of investments. Um, I think some newer innovative technologies are where uh, I think there needs to be more um, uh, research to understand, uh, for example, the potential for installing large-scale floating solar at sea. Um, you know, under different wave conditions. So that's more like a research that um, the report talks about for like the medium term. Um, the other area that I'd like to talk about, um, and, you know, I could get into the detail in, for all of these uh, different areas, but um, I'll just pick a few examples. And one um, that is also very exciting and where I've seen a lot of innovative solutions within California is this um, and this drive to find solutions for um, uh, fish uh, fish feed that is sustainable. So as um, you would know that um, for many uh, farmed fish, the feed that comes uh, comes from uh, wild fisheries and fishing from the ocean um, and there's a lot of interesting, innovative research that is going on in terms of, you know, how do we um, continue this? How do we support an expanding aquaculture sector by coming up with alternatives that are sustainable? So whether those are uh, algae-based feed um, or um, uh insect-based feed, and all of these research and innovations um, are happening in the Bay Area, which is uh, really, you know, it's really exciting. And uh, the questions that often come up is, how do we scale up some of these solutions? Um, so, uh, and how do we make them competitive to the fish meal uh, prices? Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, how do we make, uh, and how do we come up with alternatives for fish oil? So in some ways, um, the, there's a lot of exciting research that has already kicked off in many of these areas. Um, similarly with shipping, um, there's been a lot of discussion in terms of moving to alternative fuel um, and the report talks about the various investments and the, uh, that that needs to happen to help uh, to help that transition in 2050. 
you know, one of the things that I, I was struck by when you're talking about these opportunities um, specifically was around the fisheries one in terms of evolving how we manage fisheries. And I know I'm think, just thinking from the U.S. perspective, we have the Magnuson-Stevens Act, which was implemented to regionally manage fisheries in the United States. And there have been some successes with that. But it takes so much time and policy. And I, what I'm concerned about here is that we're talking about a very short timeline for where we have to bring these emissions down. And governance and policy can take a really long time. And I'm curious how the panel thought about that in terms of how do we move away from business as usual in ocean management in the time period necessary to see the results come to fruition? Uh, yeah, the, and very valid question, um, Jennifer. So the panel is the, the what come what came out of uh, this report are very clear call for action um, that was announced by the panel. So these are call for actions to demand greater attention of uh, where we are scaling investments um, and effort across these five areas. Um, and um, and this has been taken forward by the uh, by the panel in terms of working with the various private sectors um, and uh, government organizations to come up with uh, with clear solutions of saying what would happen uh, what actions would be taken to achieve these various um, to achieve the priorities that has been um, underlined in the report? The the panel is is as I said right at the beginning. The high level panel is very much a solution oriented panel, and it it wants to be informed by science, but it is it it is an action taking panel. So in some the in Lisbon. Um, uh, Ocean Conference in June 2020, the panel will be uh, coming up with very clear recommendations of how it wants to take forward these initiatives um, and, um, you know, and set an example for the other countries uh, in terms of how we could play a role in protecting our oceans and also sustainably using the oceans. We just have like a couple minutes left. This is all very high level and global and a lot of jurisdiction and management that is very far away from most of us that are living in these communities around the world. And I'm curious how people like listeners and anyone that is engaged in ocean conservation um, can get involved in supporting some of these actions. Some of these I'm thinking already of like, oh, yeah, we have a lot of coastal restoration happening in San Francisco Bay, and I'm wondering if people know about that and how it relates because it ties in directly with some of the things you're talking about here. But just maybe can you take a moment to talk about the actions those of us that are in communities could take to help support these actions moving forward? Yes, sure. Um, so the important thing is, as you rightly said, that um, I've talked about it in a very high level, and I mentioned government-focused solutions and policies, but all of this cannot happen just from top down. It needs to have a bottom-up approach as well. We need to engage um, various stakeholders, coastal communities, um, uh, and make sure that some of these solutions are not just driven by a central, uh, you know, 
government or international initiatives. In fact, one example is uh, with blue carbon initiatives um, can often, uh, you know, the literature says can often fail if there is no community engagement because if you ultimately restrict fishermen if you don't give them no action to the ocean to the ocean spaces and you know don't think about what impact it has on their livelihoods then um, this would have a negative impact on those households and um, you know having a more collaborative approach where uh, you're bringing in the stakeholders and the voices and making them not just hearing not only understanding and taking account of the knowledge they have but also building that into the decision making is important so that's one point i'd want to say i think as us um there are many things uh, that the the many solutions uh, that i have taken back as an individual from the report um and one of that is for example you know thinking about my diet thinking about where what i eat and where is it coming from how sustainable it is can we make those dietary choices it's extremely hard for governments to change behaviors you know and often that needs and and there are um and changing behaviors and can happen through education and people understanding uh you know how some of uh, the dietary choices can impact um lifestyle that said it's not talking about like uh, com- uh it, it's talking about di- diversifying of diets rather than saying that you know you should be completely uh changing your diet uh completely but what it's saying is that we can diversify our diet we can introduce plant based food we can introduce more fish fish food um and bring about a more balanced diet than you know currently where in for many population it's a very meat based diet so there's some key messages coming out on marine protected areas i just wanted to touch on that because as you say it's really important um there is so much um these marine protective areas play a very important role and the report talks about the fact that it's one of the solutions um in 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 terms of uh helping improve the biomass so uh and also protect the areas sorry wonderful and that's exactly you know how we take a, a part of this in the national marine sanctuaries is we are marine, federal marine protected areas we also here in california have these state marine protected areas which have so many benefits for the ecosystem as well but also with restoration efforts and with blue carbon storage too and and getting engaged with communities um that are near national marine sanctuaries and helping educate them too about these opportunities through the ocean so there are a lot of ways npas can help support this mansi i want to say thank you so much i have so many more questions i'm thinking we might have to have a couple more interviews this year on these topics um about each of these solutions but i really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing the opportunities presented in this report do you want to share the website for this report for people to dive in more to learn more about each of these opportunities yes uh the website is um let me quickly it's oceanoceanpanel.org/climate uh, to find the report but oceanpanel.org will provide a lot of information on the high level panel uh, itself and then there's a tab you can get into to know more about the climate report 
That's great. Well, thank you again. I'm sorry we have to cut this short right now, but I appreciate you calling in and keep on this wonderful work you're doing with helping the ocean and our global planet to be more sustainable. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thanks. Bye. Take care. That was Nancy Konar from the World Resources Institute, and we were talking about the High-Level Panel for Sustainable Ocean Economy, a report talking about the ocean as opportunities for climate change solutions, which is fascinating and really reassuring to hear that many of these things, there's a lot of work happening already um, in play towards these solutions, so we'll continue to focus on those opportunities. We're going to take a quick musical break. I have another interview in just a moment here about some events coming up up in Fort Bragg. So take a quick break here and we'll be back in a moment. to switch gears a little bit here after talking about all this important high-level information regarding climate and solutions. And coming back to the coast of California, it's March now, and it's about the time of year where whales, gray whales, start moving north. But it's also a time of year where there's a lot of activity on the, the coast with uh, spring winds potentially starting up soon to get our upwelling process going. And I have someone coming in, calling in from the Noyo Center in Fort Bragg to tell us a little bit about some activities happening up there. Welcome, Maggie Barrett. You are live on KWMR. Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for calling in. So March is an active time on the, or active month on the coast, and just north of us up in Mendocino County, the Noyo Center for Marine Science for Fort Bragg is leading some great activities up there and great programs. And I'm I'm not sure how many people know about the Noyo Center. I've been reading about the Noyo Center online. And I'm wondering if you could just provide a little bit of background about it when it started and what it does, and then we'll get into some of the activities coming up. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the brief overview is that um, our town of Fort Bragg uh, used to be mainly an industry town, and when the mill closed in um, the early 2000s, there was a lot of talk amongst the community of what could revitalize our economy and bring some more vibrancy back into our um, beautiful coastline. And one of the things that everyone really wanted, the whole town, was a uh, marine science research facility out on the old GP mill site. So the Noyo Center started, and it all kind of escalated quickly um, when a blue whale actually was struck by a boat off of our shore and washed up. And there was this incredible citizen science project to um, kind of do science on this rare specimen and animal and then also to um, go through the whole process of uh, collecting the skeleton. So uh, we are definitely a hub of community and um innovative science and research possibilities, and we're excited about March. It's our favorite month for showcasing our different skeletons and um, engaging with the community about the science that we do. So can you give us a brief overview of what's happening in March? You have a series of events, some great speakers uh, lined up, and, and please tell us about those events. Wonderful. Yeah. So 
The, um, I'll highlight the science talks first. We have um, some different specialists coming in to talk about the different whales. Uh, this Friday, we have a local scientist, Tanya Smart, talking about gray whales at the Discovery Center, which is located on Main Street in Fort Bragg. And then we also have a um, specialist who's worked with uh, whales for the past 50 years. He has some incredible stories spending time with um, individuals and pods and learning about their languages. And uh, really incredible. He's a super engaging speaker. And he has two talks. One is going to be on the behavioral biology of killer whales. That's on March 14th. And then on uh, March 21st, he's also going to give a talk on ocean acoustics and the role of sound in their societies. Those are a couple of the highlights. Those events are free. And then we'll, he's also going to give a talk at the Heritage House Resort and Spa. It's going to be more of a high-end fundraiser. Um, you can find details for that on our website and also on the Heritage House website. Um, that's on March 12th. Yeah, I was going to say the other two things I want to highlight, um, we're going to do um, for the week of the Fort Bragg Whale Festival, which is the weekend of March 21st, we're going to have a kids' marine science and art fair on display at the Discovery Center. So a couple of classes and um, kids have been doing some projects on what they think about climate change. So looking forward to seeing the the kid perspective on that whole situation. And then that also kicks off our uh, blue whale bone week. So that blue whale that I talked about, um, we bring her bones out once a year. So it's a really special opportunity to get to walk alongside of a blue whale and really get a sense of how big of an animal these are. And that's the um, last week of March. It must take quite a team to move a blue whale skeleton in and out. That's not typically something we move around a lot in our outreach work. No, yeah, definitely not. And luckily we have an incredible dedicated team of volunteers to help us out. Um, the long-term vision is to have a big home for her, so a big marine science facility to fit her. Um, but we just don't have a building big enough. She's over 73 feet long. So for now, she just comes in and out once a year. Well, it's wonderful to hear how the community has taken, unfortunately, a very sad example of some conflicts in the ocean with um, really turning it into something positive for so many people to be inspired by and to come together on. So it's so exciting to hear how many new things are happening up there. Can you share with us the Noyo Center website and how people can get information or get up-to-date information? Yes, so you can visit us at noyocenter.org, and there's all kind of inf kinds of information there about both our story and the upcoming events. And I'm also um, putting information up on our Facebook page, uh, Noyo Center for Marine Science, and we're also on Instagram. You can find us at Noyo Center. Excellent. Thank you so much, Maggie, for calling in today and giving giving us a brief overview. And good luck with your events coming up. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All right. Take care. Bye. That was Maggie Barrett from the Noyo Center in Fort Bragg talking about some really fun events coming up in March, some great science talks and public events and community events for people to come in, celebrate the amazing ocean biodiversity we have along the Sonoma, Mendocino, and Marin County coast. So much going on. Very interconnected. So that's noyocenter.org.
And I have one last announcement before we wrap up the show is uh, March 12th through the 15th is the 17th annual International Ocean Film Festival in San Francisco. And there's some amazing films lined up as usual. And I wanted folks to know that there are films that are being shown as part of the festival at the San Rafael Theater, at the Rafael. Um, and so going to the website, you'll be able to see which days have films and some there's some little previews of what the films are as well. So check out internationalOceanFilmFest.org. That's I-N-T-L OceanFilmFest.org. March 12th through 15th coming up. There will be a film there about the Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary that was put out by Changing Seas from South Florida PBS, and that will be airing on Saturday. I think that is the 14th in San Francisco. So I will be down there at that, and hopefully we'll see some of you. So thank you so much for tuning in today to Ocean Currents. It's always the first Monday of every month. You can hear past episodes from Ocean Currents on our podcast, which is in iTunes, or going to the cordellbank.noaa.gov website. And I love hearing from folks. If you ever have any questions or ideas for shows, please email me at jennifer.stock, S-T-O-C-K, at noaa.gov. And thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the bay ocean or whatever body of water you can get into safely and stay tuned for another episode next month. For listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.